0: Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. This is your host Ken Gagné. This week I'm speaking with Mr. Wade Clark, developer of Leadlight Gamma, an interactive fiction game that came out earlier this year. Interactive fiction, for those of you who don't know, is another name for a text adventure, which is a genre of game that those not in the know may consider to have died 30 years ago, or which younger gamers may not even be aware of. A text adventure, as the name implies, is a game composed almost entirely of text. It was popular in the late 70s and early 80s, especially as popularized by a company called Infocom with their line of Zork games. You can almost consider text adventures to be a spiritual cousin to Dungeons & Dragons, in that it relies heavily on your imagination. In a text adventure, you are presented with a text description of a room, such as a dungeon, or a spaceship, or a forest. It tells you what is in the room, and where the exits are. It is then your job to input two-word commands, usually consisting of a verb and a noun, to interact with the environment, and the game will respond to you with the results of your actions. So, for example, you might say, Look room. If there's an axe in the room, you might say, look axe, get axe. And if there are exits among the compass points, you might say, go north, drop axe, and the like. In some of the more advanced interactive fiction games, there may even be NPCs with whom you can interact. Combat is rare, but not unheard of, and puzzles abound. A popular platform for interactive fiction back in the 80s was the Apple II computer, and Lead Light was originally released for the Apple II, but in the year 2010. There is an active community of interactive fiction enthusiasts, Wade Clark created Lead Light and submitted it to the annual Interactive Fiction competition in 2010, where it won an award for the most diverse range of scores. Some players love how he adapted the EAMON system, which was created for the Apple II, to his specific purposes and implemented a variety of new features. Others didn't like how old-school it was and relatively inaccessible by being on the Apple II and created an EAMON instead of something more modern, such as Inform. But it does have a ton of great features and themes. This game is sort of a text adventure version of Resident Evil, you might say, in that it is a survival horror game. You have a health statistic that goes down as you combat your opponents, and the environment is very creepy. Think of it as Silent Hill, where you just suddenly wake up one day in a school as a teenager, but your school is now completely dark, and everybody's trying to kill you, and there are spiders and monsters and things that you can't see trying to kill you. So, not all that different from your typical high school experience, actually. The game is inspired by such games as Resident Evil and Silent Hill, and also Black Swan, the movie. I got the inside look from Mr. Clark about these inspirations when I interviewed him five years ago for a magazine called Juiced.gs, the website for which is Juiced.gs. It is a quarterly magazine dedicated to the Apple II computer, currently in its 20th year of publication, and of which I became the editor-in-chief in the 11th. I chose not to retread the ground from that interview in this episode of Indie Cider. So what I'm focusing on in my interview with Wade is how he transitioned it from the Apple II to this modern system that works on Mac and PC, and his release of the game as a commercial product on itch.io, where it's now for sale for $5. If you'd like to read the interview I conducted with Wade in 2010, there will be a link in the show notes to the Juice.js website, specifically Volume 16, Issue 1, as well as an interactive fiction PDF that you can download off our website. If you'd like to see this game being played, as always, you can go to IndieCider.net where you can listen to this interview paired with a Let's Play, but as you can imagine with a text adventure game, there's not too much to see, although the Mac and PC version does have such features as an auto-map, which makes it much easier to navigate about the room without clinging to your graph paper like you're used to when playing Zork. More information about this game as well as download links can be found at ledlightgamma.erissoftware that's H-E-I-R E-S-S software.com, which is Wade's website just for the various versions of this game, including the Apple II version, which you can download for free or play in your web browser. For more information about interactive fiction as a medium and genre, I recommend checking out getlamp.com for the home of the documentary entirely about text adventures shot by Mr. Jason Scott. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at GameBits and send feedback by visiting us at indesider.net. Thanks for listening, and here's Wade. Joining me on the line today, all the way from Australia, 14,000 miles away from my home in Boston, is Mr. Wade Clark, developer of Leadlight. Hello, Wade.
1: Hi, Ken. How are you?
0: Good. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Now, you and I have known each other for about half a decade <laughs> in various media, but this is actually the first time we have spoken.
1: Yeah, it's just me listening to your podcasts and occasionally watching you online and stuff, and otherwise we've communicated via email. So, yeah, it's, a, it's funny to suddenly suddenly get to the talking part like this
0: Leadlight gamma just came out in 2015 and it is an adaptation of the original led light which came out five years ago so have you been working on this adaptation
1: for five years no i think i might have been i might have put in the first like i might have just started to play with it a, a couple of years ago basically it's it happened because i program new text adventures with this programming language called Inform, and one night, sort of just for fun, I sat down to type in some of the locations from the original Leadlight, Light because the original, I had to program stuff for months before I could even, uh, you know, turn it on and see what the first room was like. That was sort of how primitive the tools I was using. Here in Inform, I could literally just type the room description and type go, and I was there with a cursor, and it was like, a, you know, already a bit of a simulation of the game. And it was just because I enjoyed that experience enough of walking around in it again that I, you know, basically I liked the world of that game. And if you suddenly decide that you're going to remake a whole game rather than make a new one, and that's a big time commitment, you must like your own game in this case, which I did. So that's that's how I got the ball rolling. I suddenly decided, well, I want to turn this bunch of descriptions I've typed in into the game in uh, a new, yes, yeah, a new incarnation
0: so you had a few years off between the development of Leadlight and de- and the development of Lead Light Gamma. What was it like to revisit a game you'd written years ago?
1: Well, because this game, I've spent a lot of... I guess because of the complexities of making the original, it was something I was... It's a game where a lot of it is burned into me anyway. I think to make, perhaps, if you made a similar game using new tools, you wouldn't have to spend as much time with it. You wouldn't be sort of tweaking the programming at a really nuts and bolts level like I was in Apple II Basic and assembly language, and that forced me to become incredibly familiar with it in a way that I might not be with a game that I make with newer tools and takes less long to make. So it was still pretty live in my mind, and then I'd spent uh, time like talking about it, and it had been reviewed and stuff afterwards. Yeah, so it was for me, it was still sort of fresh in my head, even though it was a fair while later.
0: Is this the first game you've released in, in form?
1: This would be the... Third, the first one I released was a game about uh, a birthday party, six-year-olds having a birthday party, and it was called Six. And then the second one was a little game I did for a competition called EctoComp, that is a competition within interactive fiction communities where you sort of make a little a Halloween-themed game, and that was called Ghost Ring Night. And then so Lead Light Gamma is the third one, yeah, that I've made with Inform.
0: After creating those two original adventures, why did you choose to revisit a game you'd already made as opposed to making a third original adventure?
1: Yeah, well, I had, I'd been think basically, I'd been thinking about doing a sequel to Lead Light just using Inform. And then because of that little experience I had one night where I typed in some locations from the first one, it just became an idea that grew into my head because it was just something I, I liked. I wanted to to walk around in the first game again in some fashion.
0: One of the complaints about the original Lead was its inaccessibility, in ter- in, not in gameplay terms, but in technical terms, because it was written for the Apple II. However, in my opinion, a lot of that complaint is addressed by the fact that it can be played in any web browser via the ActiveGS emulator. So, given that most people can access the original version of the game if they wanted to, what advantages did you see to porting it to the more common platform of Inform?
1: Yeah, well, I still, I suppose, ultimately, I had to view it as an exercise in getting the game to more people. And as you say, it's already available. If you you can either download an Apple II emulator and put the images in it from the original game, or you could go to my website and play it with this Active GS thing, which is like an emulator in a browser of an Apple II running Leadlight. But in spite of all that, there's still, in the current context of gaming, I find people are less willing to do these things in general. And even in the interactive fiction community where there's this paradigm that's developed of the games are kind of these portable files that, and then you put them in these things called interpreters and it runs the game. But that's already a step between some player, um, you know, they see, oh, I want to play this game, and then they first they have to read an instruction that says, okay, now you have to go and download this thing. And they go, oh, okay, they do that, and then they get the game. Then they've got to learn how to play the game, uh, and there are, there's the historical argument about that the parser is sort of a uh, inherently difficult thing to, to learn or to understand for some people. I guess the people are presented with a prompt and a question mark and there's this argument that they think they can type anything and that it should be understood, and that's not really how it works. But I I don't know. I mean, in my sincere opinion is that none of these things are as difficult as they seem, and yet they're all – there's still hurdles to jump over in the age when you've got Steam and you click, you download the game, you turn it on, and in theory it works. I mean – in two-for-two two samples of the two games I downloaded on Steam. Both had incredible technical problems, but I won't bore you with my sufferings. Uh, basically, yeah, it's it's still a hurdle. And with the Active GS thing, they had to download the emulator plug-in first, and that's technology that's already starting to get out of sync, I think. Like, I think it doesn't work in Chrome anymore. Uh, and also, when, once they get into the game in the Apple II environment, uh, even people who play interactive fiction a lot, They've got these set ideas about what things work or don't work, and there are particular commands they know, and some people tried those and they didn't work, you know, and they went, oh, this, this isn't operating how I like, and they're quicker to turn on it for that reason. Now, this was also in the context of the interactive fiction competition, which is where the game first appeared. It's hard to say. There are some people there who are really sort of reaching out to each game and trying new things, and there's also, understandably, people have to get through 30 to 40 games, so they're quick to find reasons to not like something. So, you know, some guy typed in, um, you know, he didn't like that it didn't have a restart command. I think I had you had to type quit. I didn't have memory to stick in the word restart as well. I mean, I was playing with individual bytes in this thing. Uh, and to repeat a command I had said in the manual, I'm big on, you know, reading the effing manual to... Um, to hit return to repeat your command. But somebody typed a G, which is the typical interactive fiction way of doing it, and it didn't repeat their command, and they were angry about that. So there were both external factors to do with setting up the software, the emulator. Then once they got into the Apple II world, it was also sort of operating in technically in different ways to what they would expect, and also an unusual combination of elements in the game, that is puzzles and sort of random combat and being set in the, the modern world, even though it was in coming at them by this 8-bit, you know, screen. Uh, so I think, yeah, there was a lot of um, kind of confusion about how to make sense of this game for some people.
0: Some of the complaints you outlined were levied against you by judges in competitions. <laughs> Given that Lead Light has already been entered into competitions, is Ledlight Gamma eligible to be an entrant in these competitions?
1: Uh, I think not. I think I read recently just in some discussion about... Uh, the, at least for the I mean they have the interactive fiction people have the, the Academy Awards of Interactive Fiction which is called the, the XYZZYs or the Zizzies or something. Uh and I don't think it's eligible for that because it counts as an incarnation of a game that has previously come out and it's they're focused on new stuff. But I mean it may be eligible for something else somewhere.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So since you were porting this game and you were making these updates and these changes to the interface, for example, you had the opportunity to make other changes, such as to the gameplay, to the layout, to the puzzles. Mm -hmm. What, What did you decide what to change versus what to keep?
1: Yeah, that was a really a big, big part of the whole project, deciding what to change, what to leave as is. I suppose I started off with the idea that it would be completely faithful that is you know if you started off with just a verbatim thing of the game running in another language that's what it was going to be but then obviously i began to think about it and i thought well there are things that i can add that make it more attractive and accessible without uh being something that uh wasn't really available to the person who had the original game That is the same. Most people make, you know, if they're playing a game like this which needs a map, they can either do it in their head or they make one. So, well, I've just helped by adding a map on the side of the screen. It doesn't show you anything you haven't, any place you haven't been. You know, it just makes the map for you as you walk around. The colour-changing features that were on the Apple 2GS version, I reproduced them in the the screen border and on the the map background. So if if an enemy finds you and you need to hide, the screen turns red, uh, there are various other colour changes depending for the you know, just minor things like when you're saving a game or restoring or if you die. or And I guess I didn't want to change any of the the numeric mechanics behind the game. I, want, I basically wanted it to be that uh, if you played a game on the Apple II version, that in the turn count and all the die rolls behind the scenes, that would all be identical to in the new version. So if anybody says, well, I beat the old version, if you beat the new version, you're as good as them or vice versa, you know. The two versions are comparable in gameplay. It is the same combat percentages and stuff like that. And I haven't altered the pros except where I've altered the pros in both games. So, for instance, uh, you know, if I, there was an improvement I could make, but I went back to the Apple II version and tried to make it there and there wasn't room or it didn't fit on the screen, I wasn't, I didn't allow myself to add it to the new one. So the two are actually in sync again. If you download the Apple II version for free now and tried it, you'd find the prose and all that is the same as in the new one.
0: There are two features in particular I'm curious about. One is the soundtrack, because I read one of the reviews of Lead Light Gamma, and this author's... He was glad to have the music, but he was disappointed that it didn't sync with the gameplay. It was more like it was running separately from what was happening on the screen. Why did you choose to implement it that way?
1: Yeah, oh, that, that's a, that was a fair call by him, but it's it's funny. What happened was the... Originally, there wasn't going to be any music. That was kind of a thing that just happened. You know, I, I made, I had a track, I, like I made a, a title sting and that was going to be it. But then I thought, oh, I could make, you know, more tracks related to this. And I did. And they were sort of, I visual, oh, visualized isn't a good word for music, but I saw them as feelies in the old sense of the thing where you used to buy a game from Infocom and it would have props in the box, you know, like a, the Wishbringer had a, a toy stone in it or it might have had a uh, a fake magazine or something, you know, documents that – and they actually helped you play the game. Sometimes they were copy protection as well. But there's a tradition of having sort of these external things that are external to the game, that come with the game. Now, in the current age, there's a, a, one guy online in particular, Sam Cabo Ashwell. I, he was suggested that feelies – in this day and age, you could basically attach the feelies to the game file. He sort of said, well, if you can, why not, you know? Why make people download more other stuff? And so that was kind of what was on my mind. I was thinking, oh, well, I've made this music. I was thinking of just having it separately, but I, I have the technology to stick it in the game, to attach it to the game. Why don't I? I've got an image gallery in there as well. So that's how it came about. And then kind of, I suppose I thought I have people have to be able to play it, so then I wrote the music player. And then it's starting to look a bit, a bit more accessible or a bit more integrated, but... It's not really. It was it was basically designed as something you could listen to outside the game, but if you want, I've set it up so you can listen to it inside the game. Um, so apparently that you know for that the review on Adventure Gamercom that didn't work and I can I can see his point. I haven't thought about it that you know from that perspective before. It's sort of the first time I've tried it really.
0: And what about the minimap feature? That seems like something that for technical reasons, you could not have implemented on the Apple II where you were dealing with bytes, but being able to technically implement it also has an impact on the playability because, in a way, it's making the game easier. So was this something you implemented because you were able to or because you are targeting an audience that may not be as experienced or adept at text adventures and may need that assistance?
1: No, I basically did it because I was able to. I think the thing... In my mind, the thing that helps new players the most is the tutorial mode, which is completely hands-on. It says, okay, here's what to do, uh, here's how this works. It introduces to the commands in a certain order and then says, okay, now you're ready to go. To me, that's the main thing that helps uh, new players. I I mean, obviously, the map uh, probably also helps, but I guess there's also a tradition of people knowing they have to map stuff in these games. If I'm selling it to people who don't know they have to map stuff, well, now they don't. They've got the the graphic thing beside them. And I just think it is also a, a visually attractive element as well. That it just yeah, it gave I mean it's good on the screenshots. It makes it look makes it look cooler than just a page of text. So yeah. I mostly did it because I could. No,
0: that's just as good a reason as
1: any. Yeah.
0: Now one of the other changes you made was that the original game was freeware, this one is commercial. Why make that change?
1: Well, A, I wanted to make some money. B probably because there is an increasing sense that we should be, in the, in the interactive fiction community, we should be valuing our games more, perhaps. There's, I mean, the the interactive fiction that was written after the what people have called the commercial period, which was like in the 80s and early 90s, and then it sort of stopped, and then there was this community that was kept writing these games. They just did it because they liked it. They did it for each other, um, and so they weren't selling them. And so because they are sort of the seeds of the community, the idea of selling it is never... You know, it's, I guess it's never been lar- writ large on people's minds in that community. And maybe we're just getting used to the idea again, given that uh, indie gaming per se has sort of gone gangbusters, you know, and people have made it outrageously easy to sell your games now. You can go on uh, itch.io like I have with Leadlight. Um, it's harder to get on Steam, but you can do it. There are all these venues for dispensing your games, and um, that's made it easy enough that... I thought I, I should just do that. I, I wanted to start, uh, and and also adding, you know, saying it is worth something. And what it is worth is a dollar less than Andrew Plotkin's game because his game was brand new, and he charged $5 for it. So I tra- subtracted a dollar and <laughs> said, all right, he's led like Gamma for
0: $4. That's Hadean Lands you're referring to? That's right, yep. Yes, I backed that on Kickstarter, full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that you want to make a little bit of money on this. How would you define the success of Lead Light Gamma? Is it in positive reviews? Is it in player feedback? Is it in your bank account?
1: Uh, for me, it's, my habit has always been that, I mean, the artistic things I've made have usually not made money. They usually cost more money to make than they make. And I mean, the way I structure my life is I, you know, I like to have a, a sort of a, a part-time job or something that's, that's giving me structure and that is separate to creative work and then do creative work around that. And in, in that uh, scheme, it's uh, not terribly worrying to me if these things don't make money. So, I mean, now it's it's nice to have some money. I mean, it's not making a tremendous amount. You know, I can say it's made more than any other text adventure I've written because I didn't charge anything for them. What was the question?
0: <laughs> so this is your first commercial
1: game? Y- uh, yes, it is, actually. Yeah. Oh,
0: excellent. The The main question was, what would have to happen for you to consider Lead Like Gamma a success?
1: Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, so for me, I actually, I do like um, positive reviews and stuff, or, you know, or interesting reviews that show that people perceived what I, you know, something that I put in or something that I hadn't even thought of. Uh, I, I mean, it's especially, I get that sense from, I also produce electronic music and it's quite, I think by most people's standards sort of difficult. And so there, when I get a review that says that is from somebody who, can perceive what I'm going for. You know that's very gratifying. Um, so yeah, when I just seeing reviews and seeing people mention it and play it and that they liked it and stuff, that that is probably the you know uh, one of the main things that sustains me. Yeah.
0: How did you come up with the name Leadlight Gamma? Because for most games that are being revisited or upgraded, I would expect to see a name like Leadlight 1.1, Leadlight XL, Super Leadlight, Leadlight HD.
1: Leadlight director's cut. <laughs>
0: That's an excellent one, especially given the cinematic inspirations for the game. I've never seen a game with the gamma suffix. So how did you yeah. come up with that?
1: Uh, yeah, well I was thinking,
0: you know, okay, in
1: the beginning it's gotta have all right, practical number one practical consideration is I want it to have a separate name from just being called Lead Light again, so that it's you know shows up as a separate entity online. But then uh, as you ask why why not call it the director's cut or whatever? I guess I I don't know, I think it's well, I guess I have a bit of a beef with the term director's cut or in general the move to remarket, resell games using these funny little titles like you place, you stick down the title, then you put a colon, then you put some other words after it and suddenly you can charge people for it again. And sometimes I don't think people have been justified in the charging or the words they've put down have been silly or thoughtless. I mean, director's cut is becoming a very abused term, uh, especially if your perspective is like a bit of a cinema snob like me. You know, originally it was because there was an issue with studios stopping people interfering with the, the way the director wanted the film to be. And then later on, the director got some kudos or power or something, and they edited it to how they thought it should have been. But now people are just slapping the words director's cut on anything that's, a you know, we added some graphics or a few new rooms. Uh, it's It kind of cheapens the term director's cut. So uh, in general, I haven't been a fan of those things. Oh, maybe it's one of those things where you've got a different standard for what you play and for what you do yourself. I mean, I quite enjoy a lot of survival horror games that have those silly titles on them, but the reason I called it Lead Like Gamma was... Gamma is the, the Greek letter for G, and the G in this case is uh, for the... The format of the game is Glolx. never had to pronounce that aloud before either. Um, this is the format Andrew Plotkin helped or entirely created for dispensing uh, interactive fiction games a new. And um, so because it's in that format, it's gamma, it's G for glocks. It's um, also because it was a kind of an evocative thing. When I look at the title picture, which is black and white, uh, it makes me think of x-rays and then x-rays are gamma rays. That's another thing. Um, yeah. So I, I guess that is the reason. I just, I sort of found it to be an interesting, interesting take on some ideas I had floating around in my head.
0: It's not because you finally implemented the G command to repeat the previous command.
1: <laughs> I'm, I can barely remember if I did now. I put in the thing where you hit return and see, but secretly behind the the scenes, what it's doing is typing G. <laughs> well, no. you, you just can't see that.
0: <laughs> now you founded the name Harris Software to launch Light, Light Gamma. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I just I had a feeling that I, I had a, at least sort of three game ideas in my head that I really wanted to do. You know, like I think it's unlikely I'll switch to other game genres or whatever at the moment. I want to keep doing um, interactive fiction games. And so because I've, because I've got a few concrete ideas that I want to do, I thought, well, I'll tie them together. You know, I'll finally put them under the banner. So they've got uh, some kind of imprimatur or auspices or whatever you like. Uh, yeah, so I've got two other game ideas, um, and I'll also release them under Ares Software. And they just they'll, there's enough of an aesthetic connection that it will work. For instance, my game Six about the little kids, uh, I've tried to keep that separate from Leadlight because there's no crossover at all. I mean, I mean, apart from I, I created them both, so I'm in them both. But uh, you know, one is a game about kids and it's G-rated and everything, and I don't sort of you know you don't want that necessarily sitting side by side on a website with this other game about schoolgirls cutting each other apart with pre-technological weapons. So. That's why, you know, by putting these other three under Ares software, it will say, all right, they're all kind of adult games, they've all got something uh, in common. And maybe Six doesn't have that in common, and Ghost Ring doesn't have that in common. Can
0: you tell us about those two other games that you have in the works?
1: Yeah, well, one is uh, there's a, a, a couple of um, science fiction, interactive fiction games called, what's the first one, Andromeda Awakening uh, by Marco Innocenti. Uh, And then there's, he made a sequel to that called Andromeda Apocalypse, which won the interactive fiction competition um, a year or two later. And he also, he then made a competition within the community to produce games in the same universe. And so there have since been, uh, I think, is it four other games? It must be four because there'd be at least, the competitions run twice and there'd been two entries each time. And a terrific one of those in the first um, competition was called Andromeda Dreaming. But anyway, so that means there's four or five games in this universe already, and I thought I would like to join in and make a sci-fi game in that universe. So that's one of the that's one of the games. Uh, the other one is this incredibly difficult idea because I haven't worked out how to do it yet, and I'm thinking about it, and it will be the next one I try to do if I can work it out. But it involves um, extreme criminality and uh, serial killing and some quite sort of extreme violence and really damaged people in it and the difficulty of that is it's very hard to put players in the shoes of people who are you know committing sexually violent murders or whatever for very understandable reasons they don't want to feel they're responsible for those actions you know it's something you can read about in a novel or see in a film and sort of be outside of it in this so for me it's kind of a, a challenge i've been trying to work at how do you deal with kind of more dysfunctional characters in a way where people it's. I don't even know if the phrase want to spend time with them is correct but can I even get some kind of interaction out of it that will be meaningful and not make people feel disgusted or you know it can't be a pointless exercise um, somebody might think it's a political act to make a game where you play a serial killer and just it's that's just a test of whether you want to type things like you know kill blah 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 which to me isn't revealing anything I mean I want to make a, a decent game and it's subject material that interests me but because of these difficulties of the the um how disturbing the subject matter is and how it's difficult to deal with these kinds of characters in interactive fiction, I, I don't know I don't know how the hell I'm gonna do it. And I just walk around each day, you know, at some um, thinking thinking of ideas of how to solve these problems.
0: Given that it is such a difficult and mature topic, why is it one that interests you?
1: I'm very interested in psychology and I'm I guess I'm interested in the psychology of people who really go the wrong way as well because it, it they actually tend to show up some of the the i don't know the strengths of the human mind or the uh, not the strengths the 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 capability of the mind to form um to create behavior to develop a pattern of thinking that so how does a person get to a point where they think the solution to their problems is to kill people? That is the point that someone has reached when they're serial killing. They tend to be doing this, you know, uh, for, for power reasons. Um, they don't relate to other people. This is sort of all they understand. And I'm, I'm interested in, in the whole broad area of the plat- of neuroplasticity and, um, and both, you know, positive sort of positive thinking and cognitive behavioural therapy, which I've had for my own anxiety and depression, and then other ways where people kind of hard bake their brains the wrong way. Uh, so that's that's part of it. And I guess I like horror material a lot as well. I've liked horror things all my life. And so an ine- inevitable part of that is it sort of falls over into this murder uh, murder category. And, yeah, so I do I do look at and watch and read a lot of sort of grisly stuff. <laughs> but I've, I'm also very interested in the, the psychology of it. So that's kind of trying to explore those two things at once.
0: You are truly a renaissance man. <laughs> so do you have any eta for those two other games
1: uh no i because i I think the sci-fi one i'm really confident about that i think i'll do a good job and when i begin it it'll take a finite amount of time but because the other one is sort of my you know my inverted commas baby that i'm really interested in i'm putting it first so and i really don't know how long it'll take me to work all that out um but you know so i'll keep at it and sooner sooner rather than later i hope you know i i my guess would be a couple of years to get that first
0: one out okay and i want to close with one more question which could be a big question we could probably do a whole podcast about this but <laughs> you know i'll i'll give you a time limit why make a text adventure at all in 2015 we have these powerful new consoles like the playstation 4 with hd graphics and mm-hmm. granted and granted that level of development may not be accessible to a one person indie but still text adventures by some people are perceived as a medium that we moved beyond 30 years ago. So why create something in this genre in this day and age?
1: I guess, uh, well, first, my, my personal skill in it is that it remains a um a very sort of viable and interesting format. It's just another type of game rather than, than, to, than I don't think of it as a game that is without graphics or something. Uh, you know, a graphic game is a game without text and a parser as well. By you know, by the same sort of paradoxical thought, and I, I forget who, who it was. Somebody in interactive fiction, I think he said, "Well, nobody complains that chess doesn't have graphics, and they still think that's pretty good." I, I personally, I'm not crazy about chess because robots can play it. But again, put my um prejudices aside. Uh, but so I think in in itself, it is a you know a viable and interesting form. But at the moment, there's actually tons of stuff going on with it um, that's not even to do with parser games. Uh, there's this tool called Twine that has made it very easy for people to make text-based games. They're essentially choice and link-based ones. Yeah, there's kind of been an explosion in that area. I mean, a few years ago on the Interactive Fiction Database, what you would see on a day-to-day basis was another another parser game would appear every few days or you know every few weeks or something. Now, basically every day every week what you mostly see are new twine games and also other sort of choice based things Uh, like there's a company called choice of games that every game title has the begins with the prefix choice of choice of um i'm ashamed i've only thought of the example choice of zombies choice of romance choice of this choice of that and they're doing they they're commercial and they seem to be doing very well So there's sort of lots of areas that have been taking off for text-based games. Now, they haven't really been... I don't know that parser games haven't necessarily been getting more exposure or less exposure, but I sort of feel that the game market is big enough now that whatever kind of game you've got, you know, you can stick it on a site and if it's got a good blurb or something, somebody will try it. So it's not like... I think the, the, peop- the like younger gamers coming through now, they're even beyond the point that they, they don't even know that a text adventure was an old thing. They just see a new curiosity that they might want to try. Um, yeah, that's what I think.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So thank you so much for talking about Lead Light Gamma. Remind us where we can find the game, you, your work online, on Twitter, anywhere.
1: Uh, my website is wadeclark.com, so, and that sort of links to everything else I do, so that, that makes me my stuff quite easy to find. I've got my site for airssoftware.com, that's airssoftware is one word, and that in turn links to Leadlight Gamma. Uh, that, the Leadlight Gamma um, has its own site on airs, so it's like leadlightgamma.airssoftware.com, and it's also on itch.io, is where you can buy it. And that link is probably too fiddly to recall, but it, it's all easy to find anyway. You can type in Leadlight Gamma or you can type in Wade Clark. And I think I've, I'm blessed at this point that my site is the number one hit.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And we'll have links to all those in the show notes. So Anybody who wants to find Wade or Leadlight Gamma can just go to IndieCider.net and there will be links there. Wade, thank you so much for chatting with us. We appreciate your time.
1: Great. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been IndieCider, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.